Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering Luke 12 through 17 and John chapter 11. Now that chunk in Luke 12 through 17 are mostly unique to Luke. Now you're going to find bits and pieces that you can find in Matthew and Mark and even John, but for the most part, Luke 12 through 17 is unique to Luke. So let's just do a quick overview of the chapters. In chapter 12, Jesus kind of takes on the Pharisees again, talks about their hypocrisy, and gives a beautiful little lesson about a a rich man and his barn, which will help us understand consecration a little bit better. And after this, we are skipping Luke chapter 13. And the reason why is because we've covered it in previous podcasts. So the next section we are going to discuss is Luke 14. Jesus is in the home of a chief Pharisee, it's the Sabbath, and he heals a man with dropsy. And then he gives a parable of the parable of the wedding feast and concludes the chapter by talking about counting the cost. What is it going to cost me to follow Jesus? Then in chapter 15, it's just an interesting show-off because he's talking to a group of publicans and sinners and the Pharisees and scribes approach. So he gives three little parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the prodigal son. It's a fascinating chapter where he's talking about the rejoicing that occurs in heaven when someone, something that was lost is found again. And after that, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives the parable of the unjust steward. Following this, he discusses divorce, and then he shifts and speaks about this story of a rich man who's unnamed and a poor man named Lazarus. And in this story, there's a reversal. And then in 17, he talks about offenses, doing our duty, and then we have that little story about the 10 lepers that only one of them returns, and Jesus will ask piercingly, but where are the nine? And then to conclude, we'll be discussing John chapter 11, and this is a famous passage. This is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He lives in Bethany, and he's at the home of Mary and Martha, and he comes And he not only raises him from the dead, but he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And after this raising of Lazarus from the dead, the story is spread that Jesus has done this. And so the leaders in Jerusalem are going to plot to have Jesus killed. So that's a brief overview of these chapters. We're covering a lot of material. A lot of this is unique to Luke. Also, it's, it's noteworthy that in John chapter 11, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is unique to that segment of Scripture. So there's a lot of things that are happening here that are not necessarily covered in all the synoptics, and there's a lot of material. And if you were teaching a gospel doctrine class, you would have to pick which parts you're going to cut. You're not going to be able to cover everything, and so you would want to follow the Spirit and, and know the needs of your students as you go and approach this covering different aspects of Jesus's teachings and his miracles. But let me give one overall theme that you're going to see consistently throughout these chapters. 
Those of you who have been to the temple and are familiar with the five covenants we make as part of our endowment, the church has made those five covenants public. It's on the Gospel Library app. They are the law of obedience, the law of sacrifice, the law of the gospel, the law of chastity, and the law of consecration. Watch those five kind of become a general pattern of these chapters. So let's jump into chapter 12. Now, chapter 12 is going to have a lot of repeated items from the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew presented them all together. Luke spreads them out throughout his gospel. And so chapters 6, 11, and 12 are going to cover a lot of Sermon on the Mount material, which we won't necessarily get back into. But it does start with something unique to Luke, and that is a little bit more of an explanation on beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Yeah. So uh, leaven, as I may, it works with dough as hidden yet a powerful force. So we're to understand Jesus is going to liken leaven to the vice of the Pharisees. He's going to liken this as a corrupting material. This is what he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now that word hypocrisy comes from the Greek, which is this idea of, of being a mask wearer. But it's literally hupokrisis, and hupo is under, increasing his judgment or distinction. If you were a character in a play in a Greek theater, you were under judgment by the people watching you. You were under judgment. They would judge you to see if you were doing a good job. And also, it's good to note that when they were acting on stage, oftentimes they wore a mask. And the mask showed their character, and they would speak through this mask. And so in a way, Jesus is calling the Pharisees mask wearers, but they're also under judgment. I kind of look at this as like a dual-level pun. They're under judgment by the people watching them, but they're also play-acting. And so I guess the reason why it matters to me when it comes to this word is sometimes people accuse us of being hypocrites or people that have religion in their life as being hypocrites. And when you have a conversation with them, and I've done this, I've said, well, what makes them hypocritical? And typically they'll say something like this, well, you guys say you believe in Jesus, but then you do something else. And then I say, I try to defend people that have faith. And I say things like, well, we are all doing our best, but we're clearly going to fall short. The church is not a place for perfect people. It's a hospital where we're coming to get well. So I think in the way that Jesus is using this word hypocrisy, I think what he would be saying is, these are people that are acting religious with no intention of doing good. At least that's kind of the way I read it. And But we're all going to fall short. So clearly people could call us hypocrites. All religious people could be called hypocrites from a certain point of view. But I don't think that's what is happening here. I think what Jesus is talking about is certain individuals with power, and they are play acting, and he's going to call them out. And he's going to call out their leaven. And then we'll see this later when we get closer towards the crucifixion. There is going to be a showdown on the Temple Mount between Jesus and the Pharisees that's going to be rather caustic. And he's going to call them out specifically, and we'll examine that as we go through there. And Mike, before you leave this, you're going to find another reference to Temple here. Because listen to what he's saying they were doing. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed neither hid that shall not be known. That's a reference to fig leaves. Adam and Eve, after they had transgressed, covered themselves with fig leaves to hide from God. And that's their hypocrisy, is they are covering themselves. What they really are, what they really think, is not what they're showing. 
So they've put a fig leaf on them so people can't see what they really are. But what we're taught clearly in the Garden of Eden and also in the temples is those fig leaves are going to come off. He says in verse 3, regarding a couple fig leaves, darkness is a fig leaf. We hide our sins with darkness. But whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in your closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. That's that reference to you cannot hide behind fig leaves. When Adam and Eve finally came forward and removed their fig leaves themselves, and they confessed to the Father that they had partaken of the fruit, that's when the Father covered them with coats of skins. And so if you will remove your fig leaves and stop hiding your sins, then the Father can cover you with a coat of skin, a reference to the atonement, and that covering will never come off. So hear the invitation and not just the rebuke. Yeah. And after this, Jesus says, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him, which after he has killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Joseph Smith said this in June of 1844. I am ready to be offered as a sacrifice for this people. For what can our enemies do? They can only kill the body, and their power is then at an end. Stand firm, my friends, and never flinch. Do not seek to save your lives, for he that is afraid to die for the truth will lose eternal life. Now, Joseph Smith's teaching an important principle here, and I think the Savior is also trying to emphasize to his followers, and it could be a foreshadowing of what they're about to see, because Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, and he is going to die. And frankly, at least according to tradition, so are the 12. The 12, many of them will be killed for their witness of Jesus, and so I think this teaching is preparing them for that inevitability. Yeah. Let's move forward to verse 13, where someone comes and says, Master, speak to my brother that he divide my inheritance with me. Jesus turns around and says, Man, who made me a judge and a divider of you? So since we're speaking of money and inheritance and those types of things, Jesus now teaches a wonderful parable about the attitudes towards money and others and consecration. Now, I would suggest that there are two parts. There's an inner law of consecration, which contains attitudes, beliefs that I must have in my very core, and then there's an outer law of consecration, the manifestation of what's inside. Now, someday we will live the united order. Someday we will live more fully an outward expression of the law of consecration. And so people kind of say, well, that's a future event. But the inner law of consecration is not. Every one of us that have made sacred covenants have promised to have certain attitudes. They are the inner law of consecration, and one of them is beautifully illustrated in this parable. The attitude I need to have is that I will take what I need and everything else, my surplus belongs to God. And I readily and willingly throw it into the Lord's storehouse for his uses. Watch how that is contrasted in this parable. Jesus says to the man, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And then he gives this parable. 
the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? So there's the setting. I have more than I need. But this man says, what shall I do with my surplus? What shall I do with my abundance? And the answer he came up with, I will build greater. I will tear down my small barn and build a large barn where I can bestow all my goods. And then I'm going to sit back and say to my soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God in the parable says, you fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee, and then whose shall those things be which thou hast bestowed? And Jesus' conclusion is, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, the way you become rich towards God is that you take care of your needs. You take care of you and those in your stewardship. And then everything else that is a surplus, whether that's a commodity or money or time or love or service, everything else that's a surplus, you give to God. You throw it into the Lord's storehouse. Let me remind you, there's a difference between the bishop's storehouse and the Lord's storehouse. The bishop's storehouse consists of my offerings that I give to the church, and they're going to use those offerings to take care of the poor. The Lord's storehouse is where I throw my abundance. Those of you who can work wood, um, throw that into the Lord's storehouse. And if he ever needs someone who can work wood, boy, it's available. Those of you who have an expertise in this area, throw it into the Lord's storehouse. If it's money, if it's time, if it's the love of your heart, throw it into the Lord's storehouse so that he can use it to bless his saints. The last thing you should do with it is store it into a big barn where it does no one any good. There is no question what that man should have done with his abundance if he were consecrated. He would have thrown it into the Lord's storehouse and said, Lord, you use this. Is there anyone in Jerusalem that's poor tonight that is going out with, without a meal? Could this money benefit anyone else? Lord, it's yours. Take it and do with it as you will. There's a place near where Jesus lived called Sephoris, and a lot of people think that Jesus actually worked on the building projects there in Sephoris. And archaeologists have actually found large grain silos uh, that were there during the time of Jesus that were owned by really rich absentee landowners. And these were really, really large. And the image here that Jesus is sharing was probably the reality of his day. There were people that were very wealthy. A lot of biblical scholars look at this as the 1%. These absentee landowners that owned large tracts of land would have these large silos to store grain, and they wouldn't even live or work the land. Other people would. And they would, like you said, just collect the grain to have it. And so I think Jesus is literally calling out the leisure class here, the, the one percenters as they were. And I think he's inviting everyone, all of his hearers, to consider what they do with their material goods. I really think that what you're talking about here is certainly compared to consecration. And you don't have to wait till you're a one percenter to be somebody who has a consecrated heart. 
Um, these fishermen that are following Jesus, we know that James and John were fishermen, and sometimes they're depicted as having nothing. But from what, I, what I've read, they're, they're middle class in Galilee, but they can consecrate. Everyone can consecrate. It doesn't matter where you are on the scale of wealth. The we invita- all have a surplus in some area yeah, of our life. Yeah, the invitation's for everybody. In fact, look in verse 21. He that layeth up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. And so the idea is that we want to come to him and lay up treasure in heaven. To me, that treasure in heaven's family. That's kind of how I see it as I kind of contemplate these things. Now, the rest of chapter 12 are excerpts taken from the Sermon on the Mount and material that we're going to cover when Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives and the disciples ask about the second coming, the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming. We're going to spend an entire week on Joseph Smith Matthew, the story Jesus tells them about the second coming. It's really the only time the Savior was asked about the second coming and answers the question. So we get an entire week in Joseph Smith Matthew, which is Matthew 24 and 25. So we're really not going to cover the rest of Luke chapter 12, other than one thing Mike wants to address in verse 41. Um, in Luke 12, 34 through 40, as Bryce has indicated, we are going to talk about that when we get to Joseph Smith Matthew. But Jesus does say things like, if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. That's kind of the gist of those verses. Jesus is basically saying that the Son of Man is going to come, but you don't know when it is. And I really want to address the question that Peter asks in verse 41. Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? And in my opinion, the Lord really doesn't answer the question directly. Look what it says in verse 42. The Lord said, who then that is faithful and a wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season, blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth, I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. I mean, what's he saying? And there's different ways to read it. And I don't think this is necessarily a this or that. I think this is a this and that type situation. So in one circumstance, Jesus' response is given specifically to his apostles, reminding them of their responsibility to be faithful and wise servants, to feed the flock, to be like Jesus. In essence, by telling them this parable, Jesus is highlighting the importance of being diligent and responsible and carrying out the duties that he has given them. And he's also warning them not to be lazy. But I think we could also read this as his parable and his response invites all of us to consider maybe it's for me, maybe it's for all people. You see, by him contrasting and comparing the faithful and unfaithful servants, Jesus was showing that there's different ways to respond to God's call, one of faithfulness and one of unfaithfulness. And so in that sense, what if it's for everyone? And then finally, it could be read as a way for us to really consider and to be ready and be prepared for his return. By telling this parable about the wise and unwise servants, Jesus could be stressing the importance of being ready for his return. This is a theme that's going to pop up again and again, the coming of the Son of Man, and then the signs, and then that we need to be ready. 
my approach in teaching the New Testament is to focus less on the signs, less on charting them on a timeline and trying to make predictions, but rather to be focusing on, okay, how can I personally be ready to have the Spirit in my life, to have the companionship of the Holy Ghost? Because regardless of the circumstances in the world or politically what's happening or what war currently is being fought in the world— I don't have a lot of control over those, but the really the only thing I really have control over is myself. And so when I get into the signs and when I'm teaching a class, we'll look at them and we'll read them, but I don't I I try not to make them too sensational. I think that the signs are basically there so that the humble followers of Christ see them and know that they're there but not to get caught up in them. And Bryce and I will talk about this more later when we get to Joseph Smith Matthew. But I think Peter's question matters because I think everyone is asking that question. Lord, who are you talking to and how am I to interpret this? And I think it could be read in all three of those ways. So now we are going to skip Luke 13 because Bryce and I have already covered Luke 13 in a previous episode. So if you go to Luke chapter 14, we read the story of this man who's coming on the Sabbath. And this individual has what's called in the Greek, hudropikos, and hudro is that word for water. And so this is translated in the English translation as dropsy. It's known as edema. It's a medical condition characterized by an abnormal accumulation of fluid in the body's tissues, leading to swelling and a lot of discomfort. This individual that comes to Jesus might be an invited guest. It doesn't say, but I think it opens up that possibility. And we read in verse 3, Jesus answering, spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they held their peace. And he took him, and he healed him, and he let him go. And he answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him up? out on the Sabbath day, and they could not answer him again to these things. I think the gospel writers are oftentimes having Jesus healing on the Sabbath to kind of push that envelope, to invite them to think about, okay, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? And I think it's also getting their attention because he's doing it on the Sabbath. I think in one sense, he is trying to get their attention to try to teach them. That's a great phrase, Mike. Here's a man in pain because he's retaining something that's causing him pain. And the purpose of the Sabbath day, in fact, the purpose of the gospel in verse 5, is to pull him out. What a beautiful description of what the purpose of the gospel is and the purpose of resting on the Sabbath day, is to pull us out of those things that we're retaining that cause us pain. I think that's a beautiful symbol. Next, we find one of my absolute favorite parables in the Savior's teaching. It's one that I, th- I think about a great deal. Let me just briefly read it. It says in verse 7, He put forth a parable to those who were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms. When thou art bidden by any man to a wedding. Let me paraphrase. Don't assume that you're important and take the position of importance. You should assume that you're the least important and sit there. It's much better to be invited up to a place of honor than those who assume they're important, sit in a place of importance, and then are asked to move down. Now, think about how that applies. How many times have you walked into a meeting and everyone's kind of, well, where do I sit? Where do I sit? There's an attitude here. There's an unspoken attitude of Christ's disciples. 
that I'm going to assume that I belong in a place of lesser importance. I have a dear friend who holds a very high position in our society and yet always parks as far away from the building as he can. He just assumes that I am a servant. That very act is what makes him so great. And Jesus is saying, look, assume that lower position and you'll be invited up. But those who assume the higher position someday inevitably are going to be pushed down to a position of lower. And when that comes, that's going to be embarrassing. So as a general rule, I'm going to let other people park in the better parking stalls. I'm going to let everyone else take the better things. I'm going to let them sit in the higher seats. And I'm going to gladly take the lower seat. Now, what always happens to people like that is they get invited up. That very act is going to invite you up into a place of honor. Using a sports analogy, I spent a lot of time as a young man, as did you, playing basketball. And I remember a coach telling us, saying, hey, guys, you don't need to pound your chest after you made the basket. We know you made the basket. Oh, and by the way, after you win the game, everybody knows you won. You don't have to talk about how great you are. One of the best things you can do is when people talk to you about the game, talk about how great your competition was and then pay them the honor. Because, I mean... (laughs) What do you naturally do to people who have that attitude in life? You pull them yeah. up to a higher position. Yeah, right, right. But the people assume that they're in the higher position, we naturally push them down to a lower position. Yeah. You know, in the gospel teaching setting, I really like this quote by the prophet Joseph where he talks about this in teaching. He says, when the 12 or any of the witnesses stand before the congregations of the earth and they preach in power and the spirit of God, and the people are astonished and confounded at the doctrine, they'll say to them, that man has preached a powerful discourse, a great sermon. Well, what should that man do? Let that man or those men take care that they do not ascribe the glory unto themselves, but be careful that they are humble and ascribe the praise and glory to God and to the Lamb. For it is by the power of the Holy Priesthood and the Holy Ghost that they have power thus to speak. In other words, just like you say, like we just have to find a way to not thump our chest, think we're great. And if there's anybody that does this, it's Jesus. We'll talk about this later when we get to John, but one of his last experiences with his 12 is he washes their feet. Jesus is the master at not making those assumptions. And because he's that kind of person... We all naturally elevate yeah. him up to the highest seat yeah. of all. We know who he is. Um I'm going to just read verse 11 where it says, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And the Savior is going to embody this. Throughout the remainder of his life, he will consistently be showing those watching him closely that that's the kind of being that he is. Now, following that story is another beautiful little message that kind of goes back to our temple discussion about the invitation to rise above terrestrial and become celestial. You remember the idea of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Well, there's a giving version of that, and that is, I'm going to do something nice for you so that you do something nice for me. And that's a very terrestrial way of thinking. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. And the invitation here is to rise above that and not be the kind of person that does good to receive something back. And so he says in verse 12, when you make a dinner or a supper, 
don't call your friends because you know what your friends are going to do? They're going to pay you back. They're going to invite you to a dinner. He says instead, verse 13, when you make a feast, call the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Thou shalt be blessed for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Kind of the idea here is if you're doing good so that someone does good to you, that's a terrestrial attitude. It's good, and you're an honorable person. But the invitation is to be celestial, and that is to do good and to give and to serve with no expectation of receiving back. This is my free gift to you. And I don't necessarily need a gift back. And so when you have a party, when you have a dinner, invite those who can't invite you back, who can't recompense you. Now, that doesn't mean don't invite your friends over to a dinner at your house. It's an attitude here. And the attitude here is don't do good with the expectation of someone doing good back to you. After Jesus makes that statement, Jesus talks about those making excuses that don't want to come to the supper. That's verse 17 of Luke chapter 14. And then following that discourse, that's going to be Luke 14, 16 through 24. Starting at about verse 25, we read Jesus speaking about counting the cost. What does it take to be my disciple? And there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and he said unto them, if any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother, and his wife, and his children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the Greek word for, the, for hate in this verse does mean hate. It's a, it's a strong word. Like, that's literally what it means. It doesn't mean to hate less. It doesn't mean to not like. It, it, it says what it says, and it's a good translation. And then in verse 27, he says, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so what does he mean by this? What does he mean about hating his wife or his children or father or mother? What does he mean? And I think there's a lot of commentary out there as far as, you know, what does this mean? And I'm, I'm the first to say, I'm not really sure what it means. I think one of the things it means is, or it could mean, is Jesus could be saying, okay, if you have someone really close to you, and they are in the way of you following me, maybe that's not the best option. I don't think he's saying you need to hate your family in the sense of you have to hate them, uh, but he does say that. And so I think the way I like to read verse 26 is this idea of don't make the love for my family get me off the path of following God. You remember with the story of the tree of life, Lehi, even though Laman and Lemuel don't go to the tree, Lehi goes to the tree and then he calls them with a loud voice, but he doesn't leave the tree or leave his post, but he still calls unto them and beckons them home. So I've liked to, I like to read Luke 14, 26 with the Book of Mormon as a lens. It kind of helps me. It softens it a little bit because, and I have heard people say this from time to time, that it doesn't say hate in the text. Well, no, it does. That's what it says. Essentially, Jesus is using strong language to get across his point. And I think that's his point. 
Don't let others stand between you and I. Come to me, follow me, but it's going to cost a lot. And I also see something going on very related to temple covenants. So let's continue, and we'll come back to that idea in just one second. In verse 28, he says, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. And then he gives another example, or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000 or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an embassage and desire conditions of peace. Now the point is, if you're going to follow me, you need to count the cost. What is it going to cost you? Because don't be one of those disciples that when you go far enough and realize what the cost is going to be, you turn around. We all have somewhere in our neighborhood or somewhere in our community where there's a building that got started and they didn't quite count the cost or something came up with it that was a greater cost than they had anticipated and they weren't able to finish. Don't be that kind of disciple. If you're going to follow Jesus, understand what it's going to cost you. Now, notice what he then does. He then illustrates the two laws of heaven, the first two covenants we make in the temple, in the endowment room. It's going to cost obedience and sacrifice. If you're going to follow Jesus all the way where he wants to bring you, which is the greatest happiness he can offer you, you're going to have to obey all of his commandments. And you're going to have to sacrifice everything that is terrestrial and telestial. You're going to have to let go of this world in order to follow Christ all the way. So notice the first two laws of the temple and the first two laws of heaven. The first one in verse 27, after he's talked about sacrifice, after he's talked about letting go of certain things, you may have to let go of things in order to obtain something better. Even in the spirit of missionary work, the Lord asked me to let go of my family for two years and go serve him. And that was a spirit of sacrificing something now to receive something great. So in the spirit of sacrifice, he now adds a footnote to verse 27. After he says, if you don't bear your cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. He then adds in the footnote, wherefore, settle this in your hearts that you will do the things which I shall teach and command you. That is what we call the law of obedience. If you're going to follow Christ all the way to the end, to the celestial kingdom, you must learn to obey all of his commandments. Now, there's a learning process. You don't have to be perfect today. But if you're going to go all the way, you must do everything he asks. That's cost number one, the law of obedience. And then after telling the story about counting the cost, he then concludes in verse 33, Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And putting that in context, there is not one celestial thing I can take with me and follow Jesus all the way. I cannot hold on to a single celestial or terrestrial thing. So if I'm going to follow Christ all the way, 
I must obey that second law. So do you see those two laws of heaven? Those two laws of our temple ordinances? The law of obedience and the law of sacrifice are the cost to follow him. Now, jumping a little bit forward to Luke 17, in the midst of the second coming prophecies, he mentions Lot. And he says, in that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back and then remember Lot's wife. She couldn't walk away from Sodom. She was on the way, but in the end, she couldn't let go of something that was back in Sodom. And so she returned to Sodom and was destroyed with it. And that's a symbol of all the things that are terrestrial and telestial that we're holding on to. You cannot go into the celestial kingdom and take anything that is telestial and terrestrial. That's the cost of being a disciple. You know, just kind of reading this from a literary perspective, when we read about the hero's journey, the hero has to count the cost and go on a journey and, or a quest and has to forsake all and has to go and chase the good and sacrifice maybe even their very own life if necessary. And sometimes when I talk about the temple, Bryce, I talk about how it's an ascent it's a return home back to God. And part of that return home is that I have to let go of the things that I think are so important. So I really like how the Savior talks about, hey, anything, now he's not saying these exact words, but this is kind of how I'm reading this. Anything that's really worthy is going to cost a lot. There's a cost in achieving something worthy, whether it's building a family or a career or a business or in the context of the hero's journey, you know, we're going to go and put the ring in Mordor. We're going to save Middle Earth. There's a cost and you have to forsake all. And I really do think here to Jesus, at least in the context of, you know, hating your father and your mother in verse 26 again, I, I really do see him here saying, that he's legit, that he's the real deal, and he is the one that we need to focus on, and we must bear our cross and come unto him to be his disciple or his follower or his student. And so with that, we're going to go into chapter 15. I like to call Luke 15 the chapter of things that are lost. So he gives three little parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the prodigal son. So first he loses one of a hundred sheep, and then one of ten pieces of silver, and then one of two sons. So the ratio of what's lost is increasing. So watch that play out as we do this. But those three things are going to get lost. But we've got to see these parables in the context. We've got two audiences happening at the same time. Now, imagine Jesus sitting in between these two audiences, telling these stories, these parables to both. And we need to understand from both perspectives what heaven does when someone repents. Look at verse 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. So on one side, Jesus is speaking to the lost, the publicans and sinners who have strayed from the law and they are the lost ones. But at the same time, verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So now we've got the holier-than-thou group over here that's judging Jesus for caring about the lost. 
And that's the setting. He is speaking to both groups. So what's the message to the Pharisees that are judging him for caring about the lost ones? And what's the message to the lost ones? There are times in your life when you're going to feel like the prodigal son. You're going to feel like the lost sheep or the lost coin, and you need to know how much heaven rejoices at finding you, and that heaven is willing to forsake the 99 that aren't lost and come for you. Sometimes you'll be the publican and the sinner side, and you need to hear these three parables from that perspective. Now, sometimes we are the judgmental ones, and we wonder why God cares so much about sinners, and why aren't you paying more attention to me? And I need to hear this lesson from the Pharisee's perspective. I need to be the older son, and there's a message I need to hear. So Mike and I are going to talk about both of those perspectives as we go through these parables that we need to understand from both perspectives what heaven does when someone repents. So let's start with the sheep. What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? Now, there's, there's a balance. I, I understand there's a balance here because the Lord will tell Nephi, it is better that one man should perish than an entire nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. Sometimes you have to be willing to let go of the one and save the 90 and 9. I've had classes where it would have taken so much energy to save the one disruptive student who was really interfering with the spirit of the class And I've had to make that choice and say, you know what? It's better to save the 90 and 9. I understand that's a balance, and we're not saying that this is always the case, but the spirit here is that your heavenly Father is willing to come find you. He doesn't rejoice when you're lost. He rejoices when you're found. He is the shepherd that is willing to set the 90 and 9 aside and go after the lost. Now, to the Pharisees, he's saying, you're not doing it right. And maybe to some church leaders and church members, he's saying, you're not doing it right. You're not focused on the right group. Let go of the 90 and 9. They're fine. They're okay. Now, you go after that one. You go find the one that's lost. You see both perspectives? When you are lost, you need to know that your Heavenly Father is willing to walk away from the 90 and 9 to find you. And the Pharisees need to be willing to do the same thing. So notice the rejoicing. When he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I say unto you, I say unto all you lost people, Joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Come home. You won't find resentment and bitterness and how dare you. You will find rejoicing that that which is lost has come home. Yeah. After that, Jesus talks about the lost coin. And we think this is the woman's dowry. When a woman got married, she could take into her marriage 
a dowry. And if this is her dowry, she's probably not very wealthy. You see, each coin would be worth about a day's wage. So she only has about 10 coins or 10 days wages. And that tells me that her family is probably not very well to do. But to lose one of them would be devastating. Now, archaeologists have gone and looked at this land, and they've seen the rough stone floors of many of the poor homes that were built. And these homes did have crevices between the stones into which coins and sometimes little bits of pottery have fallen. And archaeologists have actually pulled them up from the stone, and they've used these coins to date when people lived in these homes. So this was kind of a common theme. So by sweeping with a broom her whole house, she might hope to hear the coin rattle against the broom or maybe rattle against the stone in her efforts to find it. And I think that's probably what we're reading here. And so... When she finds it, in verse 9, she says, I have found the peace which I had lost. And then the Savior says, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And I really like how Bryce talked about how we're going from things of increasing value, one in a hundred to one in ten, and then we shift to probably the most famous story in this chapter, the story of the son who goes away, the story of the prodigal son. We read, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, for a young person to say to his father, give me my inheritance now, essentially he's saying, I wish you were dead. I wish I could have my inheritance right now. Now, there's a problem with this story. By the father giving him his inheritance, he probably had to sell some of his land. That would have been humiliating for the father because, at least as I read the Old Testament, the idea was this, that the land stayed in the family. And so for him to sell it would have been reprehensible. And then secondly, no upstanding covenant-keeping Israelite would have bought the land because it needs to stay in the family. So there are some that say that perhaps for him to sell the land, he had to sell it to an outsider, which would be like a double offense to him and his neighbors. But the father does it. Now, it doesn't say any of this stuff in the text, but it's hinted at. This is probably how it played out. But he gives him, either way, however you want to read it, he gives him this money from the land or the inheritance, and then we read in verse 13 that his son wasted it in riotous living. And then after he was all out of his money, in verse 14, he began to be in want. In my opinion, the father does lower himself for his son. It's kind of like back to that stuff that we were reading earlier in Luke, where the Savior says, hey, don't think so highly of yourself. Well, in this sense, I think the Father, we don't talk about this a lot, but the Father really is humbling himself here. Well, now we have the Son, he's all out of money, and he begins to be in want. And then it says, he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to my father. And I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. I like this because now the son is humbling himself. 
I also like verse 17, and this is how I like to read it. I really do believe that most of God's children, when they come to themselves, will recognize the truth. I believe that you are yourself at your best self. And I believe that the adversary likes to try to convince us that we are who we are when we are at our worst. But I believe that we are who we really are when we see the light within us. And so when he came to himself, that's at least how I like to read verse 17, when he saw the light in him, he decided to come home. But notice the fulfillment of that fun parable back in chapter 14, where you go in, you assume the lower position, and then you're pulled up high. Don't assume the higher position and be pulled down low. He said to himself, I just want to be one of my father's servants. That's all I want. I just want to go be one of my father's servants. But watch what the father does. The father's going to pull him back up into the position of being a son. Father, I just want to be one of your servants. No, no, no. You are my son. And I love the fulfillment of that previous chapter. Wasn't that like picking the higher seats? I am deserving of this money. I am important, and you need to recognize my acknowledgement. And now he's saying, I'm going to choose the lower seat. I think there's a lesson there to all of the Pharisees who are picking out the higher seats. You want favor from heaven? Don't do that. So when he comes home, we read in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And there's a lot of commentary out there that talks about how that would have been humbling for the father to run to his son. Like, that just wasn't done. And so what we have in this story is this beautiful reunification between a father and son. And in essence, they both were hurting, but now they're both put back. They're put back together. And that image of them embracing and with that kiss really reminds me of the story of Jacob and Esau, if you remember back from Genesis, when their reunification takes place and those brothers embrace. And that symbol of the embrace is the symbol of the atonement. That's literally what the word means, at least in the biblical Hebrew, this idea of covering. This is also an embrace. And so... You're wrapped. That covering wraps around you like the arms are wrapped around you. Absolutely. And so with that... The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. I think this is such an important story, especially in the context of what we just read about hating your mother or father. Jesus, in a, in a large sense, gives clarification to that by telling this story. And then he ends with verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. That's the way I like to read that statement about hate your father and hate your mother. It's not about hating them. It's about choosing Christ. And when we do, the ultimate goal is that we can have that reunification of family. I know this isn't in this week's Come Follow Me, but I just want to read this verse that's really been weighing heavily on my mind lately, and it's related to this idea. So I'm just going to read this briefly. It's in John chapter 10, and I'm only going to read part of the verse, but it's John 10 verse 10, and this is what it says. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it 
more abundantly. That is who Jesus is. He has come to bring life. And that word for life is this word that is connected to family and connected to children. And we read this again, and we've talked about this in section 132, and this is eternal lives, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This is what he wants. He wants us to have life and have it abundantly. Now, there's the lesson to the publicans and the sinners. There's the lesson to the lost. Your Father is ever watching, and it won't be resentment or bitterness or how dare you. It will be welcome home, my son or my daughter, and it will be rejoicing that your Father in heaven will rejoice at your return. So come home, come to yourself, and then come home. There's the message to the publicans. Now watch him turn the story, maybe not to the Pharisees that are holier than thou, but how about the faithful child who never went astray? I've taught a lot of students who kind of are, get a little upset that they've been straight-A students. They've worked so hard to get A's, and then their brother finally gets a C, and their parents throw them a party and buy them a cell phone. Well, wait a minute. I've been getting A's all my life. It's that audience that he kind of turns to. Maybe the righteous side of the Pharisees that says, those who haven't gone astray and are upset— that the Father is rejoicing that the lost has returned. There's a message for you. And so, verse 25, his elder son was in the field, and he came and drew nigh to the house, and he heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and said, what does this mean? And they say, thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. Now, notice that the brother doesn't rejoice at the return of the lost. He's angry. The the Pharisees were angry that Jesus was speaking to the publicans and the sinners. And sometimes we're angry at God's mercy. We're offended that God is merciful. He was angry and would not go in. So the father came out and entreated him. And he says, lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Now listen carefully, all you older brothers who are a little offended at God's mercy over the lost. He says, son... Thou art ever with me. That was a much greater reward than killing the fatted calf. You have been with me this whole time. He has not. You have been at my side, hearing my voice, knowing my love. That's the reward. Every time my students get upset that they've worked really hard to get A's and their brother got a party when he got a C, I say to them, would you rather have the party or the A's? And it humbles them. Your reward isn't the party. Your reward are the A's that you've earned. And your brother doesn't get that reward. Notice he says then, it was meat that we should make merry. And be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive. 
don't be jealous at God's mercy because you've been enjoying that mercy for a long time. You've been in his presence. You've been enjoying the whisperings of the Holy Ghost, and this person hasn't. It's okay to rejoice. It's okay that the Lord has mercy. I think there's a message here for all of us, whether you're the younger son, the lost sheep, the lost coin, or the one that maybe resents the rejoicing that happens when they're found. I think we should never be offended at the Lord's mercy to someone else because we've been enjoying that mercy in another form. Wonderful stories. And whether you're a Pharisee or a publican, there's a message here for you. You know, Bryce, this reminds me of the the film called Jesus of Nazareth from like the 70s. And I really like the way the director portrayed this parable because in the story, Jesus is speaking And as he's speaking, every single person in the parable is in his audience, and he would pause, and he would look at individuals, and the person who's the good son would make eye contact, and then the person that was lost, he would make eye contact with them. And that's kind of how I envision Jesus telling these stories, is he's with real people, and he's talking about a story, but he's also basically saying there's a story within this story and you know who you are. I really see him as literally the master teacher. Now, this next story can be kind of confusing. In chapter 16 of Luke, it's called the parable of the unjust steward. And it starts like this. There was a rich man which had a steward and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him, and he said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Now, the steward, the person who's in charge of the master's goods, says to himself in verse 3, I better fix this because I'm really not good at manual labor. He says, I cannot dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. So I've got to fix it. I've got to somehow find a way to reckon the books so that when my master comes back, I can show that I'm worth something. And so what does he do? It's a a fascinating story. He says in verse 4, I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So who's they and what are their houses? That's the question I have from verse 4. So go to verse 5. We read that the steward called every one of his Lord's debtors to him, and he said, how much do you owe? And the first guy says, well, I owe 100 measures of oil. And so the steward said, hey, let's fix this. We're going to settle up the books. Give me 50, and we're good to go. So he does. And so then he goes out in verse 7, and he says, how much do you owe? And the guy says, I owe 100 measures of wheat. And the steward says, you know what? Give me 80, and we'll call it good. We'll square it up. And so he does. And then finally, verse 8, the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, Jesus says, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Okay, what does this mean? I mean, there's so many different ways to read this. One way to read this is that this is a parable about the use of money. One interpretation of this parable is that it's about how the manager is commended for being kind of crafty with this dealings of money in the sense that he settles up the debt, but they don't have to pay the full amount. And so the steward used this relationship 
as a way to make everybody happy, both the master and the people that owed money. Another way to read this is that this story is a story about gaining wisdom. In this interpretation, we can see that Jesus is emphasizing worldly wisdom. You see, the manager is commended for his cleverness and skill in deal-making, but he's not necessarily being commended by Jesus for his honesty. This interpretation would suggest that we need to be wise in the ways of the world, but we also need to be trustworthy and honest in our dealings with others. This parable could also be read as a story about stewardship. The manager is praised for his cleverness in bringing back some of the master's resources, even if it isn't the full amount. 80 is better than nothing. And then finally, this story could be about gaining public trust and favor. You see, the manager was able to gain public favor by showing mercy to the debtors. And in so doing, he was able to secure his future. Now, ancient stories often portray powerful people as appreciating and rewarding cunning service, even if it hadn't been 100% on the up and up. I mean, he doesn't get the full amount, but he is crafty in the sense that he's able to make a deal. And so this individual is doing the best with what he has in this circumstance. And maybe in the past, maybe verses one and two of Luke 16 are right. Maybe he wasn't the best servant, but he's trying to fix it now. And doing something is better than nothing. Now, Bryce and I later are going to talk about the story of the talents. And the word talent today is used like oh, I have a talent for playing the piano and Bryce has a talent for shooting baskets or whatever. Um, that idea actually came into being from the story of the parable of the talents, which was actually a unit of money. So what Jesus is doing here is he's talking about money and he's talking about service and he's encouraging his followers to be careful how they serve God. But I think he's also saying in verse 9, to make yourselves friends with the mammon of unrighteousness. I think what he's saying is you live in this world, so you have to be wise in things of the world. Now, let me take this back to that kind of overarching theme of temple, the covenant of consecration. We know we are to be men and women of faith, but we are also to be men and women of works. The problem is sometimes we drift towards an extreme. Some people drift towards the side of works. I have to take care of myself. And to those people, the Lord would say, you need to have greater faith. But there's a problem in the church as I observed it. Sometimes we drift towards the side of faith. And what I mean by that is, I'm going to let God take care of it. We trust that God will take care of our problems. And therefore, we don't pursue taking care of our problems like we should. Notice he says the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light, because the children of the world know they have to take care of themselves. And in that, they're wiser, because sometimes people of faith put too much on the Lord and one of the big mistakes we make is to we shift the burden of my well-being onto the Lord or onto the church or onto someone else. And that then becomes a major principle of welfare in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So part of the covenant of consecration is this command to cease to be idle. 
I think that means more than you need to work. It means you need to take care of you. Stop shifting the burden to someone else. This man took care of himself. And some of you have shifted that burden to someone else. We commended him for taking care of himself. I remind you that Spencer W. Kimball said, the responsibility for each person's social, emotional, spiritual, physical, or economic well-being rests first upon himself, second upon his family, and third upon the church if he is a faithful member thereof. No true Latter-day Saint, while physically or emotionally able, will voluntarily shift the burden of his own or his family's well-being to someone else. So long as he can, under the inspiration of the Lord and with his own labors, he will supply himself and his family with the spiritual and temporal necessities of life. So use the things of the world. Use your occupation. Use your education. Use the things that we have in this world to take care of you. Don't shift that burden to someone else. Don't just trust that Heavenly Father will take care of it. It's not all on God. There's a balance here. And you have to accept the responsibility. I really like how the revised version of the Bible renders that verse. It says, make to yourself friends by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it shall fail, they shall receive you into eternal life. Use the things of this world appropriately. Take care of yourself. And then the Doctrine and Covenants, you'll notice in the footnote a reference to Doctrine and Covenants 82, 22. It says, make unto your friends with the mammon of unrighteousness that they will not destroy you. In other words, accept the responsibility to take care of your future like this man was diligently trying to take care of his. Don't shift that burden, even onto God. There are things you need to do for yourself. I like that. After this experience in Luke 16. In verses 14 through 17, Jesus again speaks about adultery and putting away his wife. And there were a couple of schools or rabbinical schools in Jesus' day, the house of Hillel, the house of Shammai, and they would debate these things. And they're clearly pulling Jesus into these discussions. And we spoke about this in the podcast on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to go into that, it's there. If you want to read some more commentary, there's quite a bit of information that we put in the show notes with that. And so that's all there, and it's kind of been discussed. But after his discussion on adultery and marriage, Jesus gives this story about a a poor man who is named, his name is Lazarus, and then there's a rich man who's clothed in purple and fine linen and eats really well every day. That's verse 19 of Luke 16. Now, the rabbit holes go deep on what I'm about to say, but there's strong evidence to suggest that this is Jesus repackaging an old Egyptian story about a reversal, about how things are in the next life. 
And then there's other scholars that say that there were seven, probably seven or eight really popular stories that were circulating in and around Galilee at the time that Jesus spoke, and that these stories kind of say similar things. And so Jesus may have been retelling a story that they knew very well. I like that. I think that's totally cool. I like the idea that these Jewish scriptures can recontextualize old Egyptian ideas and old Egyptian stories to teach a higher truth. I really like that. And whether or not that happened, at the end of the day, I don't know. But there's some really interesting threads. If you want to pull on those in the show notes, you can get into that. But back to this story, however old it is, Jesus talks about this man that is rich, that is unknown. We don't have his name, but we have Lazarus's name. Now, I find that interesting because in Jesus's culture, everybody would have known the rich guy and nobody would have known the beggar. So I think Jesus is basically pulling another reversal in front of his audience. And then it gets even more descriptive. As this rich man is eating and he's clothed in purple, it says in verse 20, that the beggar whose name was Lazarus was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. I mean, what an image, right? A man who's so in such a bad state and he has these sores on his legs and he's just starving and there's dogs licking his sores, but then they both die and the beggar is taken into Abraham's bosom. There's the embrace again. And the rich man died and he is in hell. And he lifted up his eyes being in torments and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received the good things and likewise Lazarus, the evil things. But now is he comforted and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf affixed, so that they which would pass from thence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, Well, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, then they'd repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. There's so much happening here, isn't there, Bryce? Yep. There's so many things. I, I, I think that one of the things is this idea that there's a great gulf affixed between these two places where the dead are, and that's going to be fixed. Jesus with the atonement. is going to fix that. Yeah. And the other message is the reversal. So if you got your reward in this life, you may not get a reward in the afterlife. If you got a significant reward in this life, you won't get a significant reward in the next life. So there's kind of hints at all of that. The message I like to harp on is this idea of testimonies don't come from miraculous events. If he sent an angel to speak to your brethren, it wouldn't convert them. What's written in the scriptures will cause lasting conversion but an angel wouldn't. And it works the other side as well. If you have a testimony of what's written in the scriptures, one event won't shake your faith and cause you to leave. One event doesn't shake your faith and cause you to join. 
It's the testimony of what's written in the truth. And I love that message for all of us to ponder. Is your testimony based on an angel appearing to you, an extraordinary event? If it is, then an extraordinary event could shake your faith and cause you to leave. But if your testimony is based on what's written in the prophets, what's spoken by the Holy Ghost to your soul, then you'll stay. Now, I love that Alma the Younger was visited by an angel. But when he declares his testimony, there is no mention of the angel. He says, I know by the whisperings of the Holy Ghost inside me that it's true. I think the plea here is, don't let your faith be subject to major miraculous events that come and go. If your faith was born by a miraculous event, your faith can be shaken by a miraculous event. Let your faith be grounded in truth and rooted in a connection to heaven, and then you'll be okay. You know, Bryce, everything you were talking about, it really reminded me of that section. I don't know the exact bit, but you know that section of the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord basically says, hey, listen, um, if they're not going to read the book and they're not going to follow the Spirit, even if we showed them the plate, it's not going to do anything. Yeah, Doctrine and Covenants section 5 or 7 where he's telling Martin Harris. I, Martin Harris, I think, was pleading with Joseph to show the world the plates. Then we'll get the converts. We'll prove it. We'll prove it. We'll show them the plates. And even today, why doesn't the Lord send back the gold plates? Then we'd have the proof that we need to prove that we're right. And the Lord just says that's not how it works. They have what's written in the book. They don't need the plates it came from. I do like that quote by Farrar where he talks about there's going to be enough evidence to create plausibility. And then I couple it with this other idea of evidentiary equilibrium. There's always going to be evidence on both sides of the faith question because we have to make a choice. If God put all the evidence on one side proving everything, it would be like him compelling us to believe. And I think that's part of what faith is, is we have to trust not knowing everything. It reminds me of this statement from Brigham Young. If all the talent, tact, wisdom, and refinement of the world had been sent to me with the Book of Mormon and had declared in the most exalted of earthly eloquence the truth of it, undertaking to prove it by learning and worldly wisdom, they would have been to me like the smoke which arises only to vanish away. But when I saw a man without eloquence or talent for public speaking who could only say, I know by the power of the Holy Ghost that the Book of Mormon is true, that Joseph Smith is a prophet of the Lord, the Holy Ghost proceeding from that individual illuminated my understanding, and light, glory, and immortality were before me. I was encircled by them, filled with them, and I knew for myself that the testimony of the man was true. My own judgment, natural endowments, and education bowed to this simple but mighty testimony. There sits the man who baptized me, Brother Eliezer Miller. It filled my system with light and my soul with joy. The world with all of its wisdom and power and with all the glory and fancy show of its kings and sovereigns sinks into perfect insignificance compared with the simple, unadorned testimony of a servant of God.
Now let's turn to chapter 17, which begins with a declaration that offenses are going to come and that we ought not to be guilty of offense. Now, we've kind of talked about how Jesus handles an opportunity where he could offend, notwithstanding, lest we offend, or how does he handle an opportunity where he could have been offended? He went to another village. What I love about chapter 17 is the comparison of the next two stories. Putting them side by side is absolutely brilliant, Luke. And I'm so grateful that these two stories go side by side. One side of this is I ought not to expect God's gushing praises for doing what I am supposed to do. God owes me no thank you for doing my duty. But on the other side, the next story is, but I need to fall to my knees and thank God for what He has given me. Look at those two stories side by side. Now, in verse 5, the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith. It fascinates me that the response to that request, increase our faith, are these two stories. The way you can increase your faith is not expecting any special blessing for doing your duty, but giving God all the thanks you possibly can when He blesses you. So let's start with the first story. Now, allow me to modernize it. He gives the story about a man who has a servant and the guy comes in. Let me paraphrase it. Let's suppose I own a restaurant and I employ a busboy to clear the tables, to take the dishes that are used and go wash them. Now, what are the chances when the owner comes into the restaurant, there's my busboy who's clearing the tables. Wait a minute. Why don't you sit down and I will go get you a meal and I will bring you a meal because you've done your job. It doesn't happen that way, right? That's not a practical experience. The reward for bussing the tables is the pay that you got. You don't necessarily need to expect special treatment because you did your job. So here's how I read verse 9. Doth he overly thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Now, forgive me, but I've noticed a lot of young people who get a mission call and kind of stand up at their farewell, and their attitude is kind of, can you believe I'm willing to do this? Aren't I an incredible person that I'm willing to do this for God? And I think the idea here is, I I love that you're willing to do this, but this is our duty to do. And does the Lord need to overly thank? It doesn't mean he's not grateful for it, but does the Lord owe me anything for doing what is my duty to do? And the answer is no. We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. That's an attitude. Now, again, that doesn't mean the Lord isn't grateful. Let's not go there. It's an attitude where I ought not to assume that God owes me anything. I'm not doing some great thing. I'm simply doing my duty, and I'm happy to do it. 
I don't need any extra praise, either from you or from him. I am an unprofitable servant. Now, contrast that with the very next story. Jesus meets 10 men that were lepers. They cry out, Master, have mercy on us. He says, go show yourselves to the priest. And it came to pass that as they went, so they were being obedient, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus searchingly asked, were there not 10 cleansed? But where are the nine? Do you see the beauty of that contrast? God owes me no extra gratitude for doing my duty, but I ought to fall on the ground in thanks and praise for what he has given me. Now, those two attitudes are the answer to the plea, increase our faith. If you want to increase your faith, then do your duty. And don't think you're doing something amazing and you need all this glory and recognition. Just do your duty. But when God blesses you with anything, you fall on your face in gratitude. Sometimes when we are in the service of God, I remember some tough moments of my mission. I served in Acapulco where it was 90 degrees and 100% humidity. And man, it was miserable. And I remember those moments where I kind of thought, aren't you supposed to be blessing me, Lord? And I was having those, you owe me for this. You owe me for the good things that I'm doing. And whenever that would happen, the Lord would just take me on a little journey of all the things that he's given me. And it would completely humble me. As I looked back on all that he had done, the conclusion was, Lord, you don't owe me anything, and I am happy to do my duty. That is how we increase our faith. Thank you. I love that. The whole time you were talking, I just kept thinking about King Benjamin, which, I mean, it's right there. We're unprofitable servants. And then the other phrase that hit me is Isaiah 64. So I'm just going to read this, Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now, not to degrade us, but really, our righteous works are like unclean rags. But yet the Lord wants us to do what we can. And he loves that we're doing our best, but we shouldn't, like you say, get into this big sense of, man, I'm so awesome and I'm so great because at the end of the day, we're never going to pay him back. So I love the way you connected that, especially the way you connected it to the request, increase our faith. Now, the rest of chapter 17 has to do with the kingdom coming. And in our day, that's really the second coming millennial. There's a lot in the next few verses that we're really going to tackle when we do Joseph Smith Matthew. So allow us to combine all of that in that future podcast where we talk about Jesus talking about the coming of the kingdom. So we're just going to leave that for another podcast and now turn to John chapter 11, this beautiful story of the raising of Lazarus. 
So in John 11, Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, and we have this interesting passage in verse 6 of John 11. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. And his disciples said, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? So he's headed down. In verse 11, Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of his sleep. And the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. Hey, if he's sick, it's good that he's sleeping. But there's some punning going on because Jesus is saying essentially, No, I know he's dead, and his disciples don't get it. And so in verse 13, Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, meaning Lazarus' death, but they thought that he was talking about him being asleep. And so Jesus, to be plain, says in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And in the midst of this, we have this interesting interchange between Thomas, which is called Didymus, which means twin, and Jesus. We read in verse 16 that Thomas, called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples said, let us go that we may die with him. Meaning, I'm willing to go into into Judea and to die with Jesus. That's how willing I am to follow Jesus. Now, I think this is important, and it's just kind of dropped here in verse 16, that Thomas has that kind of faith. And I think this is important because later in the narrative of John, when the disciples tell Thomas that they've seen him, that he's alive, that he's resurrected, Thomas kind of gets a negative publicity there where he says, well, unless I put my hand into his side, I won't believe. And he's kind of denigrated as a man of little faith, or he's sometimes called Doubting Thomas. But I like verse 16 right in the midst of this in John 11 to show us the kind of guy that Thomas was. He was all in, as they say. He's completely following Jesus. But back to the story. When they finally get to Bethany, well, Lazarus has been dead, and he's not been dead for a short time. He's not mostly dead, is he? Nope. And Mad Max can't bring him back with a special pill. He's not mostly dead. He's all dead. That's right. And Jesus deliberately waits a long enough period of time, four days, so that there was no question, this man is gone. This man is decaying. This man is dead because he's going to teach something that we all need to remember. See, some of us think there's limits to his power. There are problems I have that he can't conquer. Now, if he came when the problems were small, he could have, but now they're too big. And Jesus is going to correct that misunderstanding. So watch what he does. Out comes Mary and Martha. Now, Martha... Verse 21, she says, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And that's true. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. I don't know if she was asking for him to come back for the dead. I don't know what that meant. So Jesus says, thy brother shall rise again. And this is like comforting someone who's just lost someone right now. He'll rise again. I know, I know. A thousand years from now, a million years, so far into the future that it doesn't comfort me. She says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus says these absolutely beautiful words. I am the resurrection and the life. It is not an event long ways away. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? She did. 
Now comes Mary, and she says the same thing. Verse 32, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And Jesus wept with her. He wept with her because she was in pain. And I think there's a whole message there. It shows his humanity. It also shows his patience. Yeah. He could have said, um, wait a second, I'm going to literally raise him from the dead. And yet he sat with her and he wept. It's so powerful. It is beautiful. I love the command when the Book of Mormon says, mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. It doesn't mean comfort those that are mourning. And that's what we often do. We try and explain away their mourning. We don't like people mourning, and so we try and explain it away. And Jesus didn't do that. He mourned with those who mourned. But the point of her mourning is significant. If you had been here, you could have stopped this. But isn't the implication here that it's too late? It's too late for Jesus to do anything about my problems. And it is my testimony to all of you that it is never too late. He is the resurrection. He can resurrect anything and anyone at any moment that he chooses. He can resurrect your life. He can resurrect your marriage. He can resurrect your membership. He can resurrect your faith. He is the resurrection and the life, and it's never too late. Now, yes, the sooner we invite him into our life, the better. It would be easier to solve marital problems if you bring Jesus in later. But there is no point at which it's too late for him. And so he asks, where have you lain him? And they take him to the place. Now, here's another wonderful gospel lesson. Jesus says in verse 39, take ye away the stone. Now, can I just pause on that? He's about to raise the dead. He could easily have miraculously removed the stone. So why didn't he move the stone and raise the dead? And the answer is, he asks us to do all that we can do. Raising the dead is not something they could do, but moving the stone they could. And I think we all need to pause and realize that God will do what we can't, but asks us to do what we can. So he says, move the stone. Martha says, Lord, he stinketh. He's been dead for four days. Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, you should see the glory of God? And then he prays, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And then in a very commanding voice that probably shook the earth, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot. I really like verse 44, where Jesus said, loose him and let him go. And I really appreciate this comment here where this one commentator says, it must have been a strange sight indeed. John concludes his narrative of the miracle with Jesus's command to loose Lazarus and let him go. We are reminded of the synoptic incidents, which show a similar thoughtfulness as when he commanded that something to eat be given to the daughter of Jairus. Jesus was never so carried away by the wonder of his miracles that he forgot the needs of the person. And I really like that. On so many levels, Jesus is doing 
the final sign in the book of John, John's book of signs. Now, the final sign is him being raised from the dead. But in the book of signs, this is the last one, and it's a really big moment, and yet Jesus was literally laser-focused in on individuals. He's focused in on Lazarus's comfort. He sits and he weeps with Mary and Martha. He has empathy. He has love. And he's just that kind of person. That's who he is. I think, honestly, if I had to pick my favorite verse in John 11, it really is verse 35, because it shows literally who he is. And it's an example to me, because I'm not very empathetic, that I need to be, that I need to show empathy, that I need to sit with people. And sometimes, Mike, don't fix it. Just sit with them and listen. And that's really, for me, something that personally I have to work on. So I really like this chapter on so many levels. Yes, it's amazing that he raised someone from the dead, but it also has a lot of interpersonal depth. Uh, I'm going to mention this. I don't think it's the main thing of John 11, but verse 47 says this, that the Pharisees and the priests kind of counsel together, and they're worried about the fame of Jesus spreading. And we read that Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, says in verse 50, that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. And what he doesn't understand there is the irony of what he's saying. Essentially, what he's saying is Jesus has to die because we can't let this fame of this individual, and some are calling him a Messiah, we can't let this fame spread because Rome will come in and they will take away our nation. And so it's ironic what he's saying is true, but he doesn't understand what he's saying. So at the end of 11... It says that they take counsel to put him to death, verse 53. Now, I think they're talking about Jesus, but what's interesting is in the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 10, we read that the chief priest consulted that they might put Lazarus to death. It seems that they want to put him to death because of verse 9 of chapter 12, because he has been raised from the dead. We can't let this news spread. And so it's really interesting how at the end of this chapter of this glorious miracle, we also have this opposition, this juxtaposition between light and darkness. And we're going to see that throughout the narratives where there's light, but then there's also darkness. And it kind of reminds me of the first vision. Before the light came, there was darkness. And in my life, sometimes when there's great light, a lot of times I know darkness is coming because we live in this world of opposition. But let's not lose sight of what just happened. Jacob will call death the awful monster. And the idea is no one beats the awful monster. Doctors spend their whole careers trying to fight it and push it back. But in the end, the awful monster always wins. And from that perspective, sometimes we seem helpless in this life that the awful monster is going to be victorious. But the beauty of this story and the fact that he waits so long is a powerful message that Jesus is greater than the awful monster. That applies not just to the death of our bodies, but every challenge that we face. We worship a God who is greater than all the problems you will ever face, including cancer, including financial challenges, and even death. When he said, I am the resurrection and the life, what he also meant will be heard and on the cross where he utters the phrase, it is finished.
every one of these obstacles, including death itself, will end. And Jesus will bring victory. He will bring beauty from ashes, life from death, hope from despair. I love the way this podcast ends, that even death was not an obstacle for this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And with that, we thank you for listening. We will be with you next week when we discuss Matthew 19 and 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.